0: Uh, Dr. Block teaches Bible and theology at the Wheaton Grad School. Many of you have benefited from his teaching in the Veritas class and from this pulpit. Dr. Block has taught students and pastors in educational settings all around the world, including in Greece, Hong Kong, Canada, England, Denmark, China, Colombia, Singapore, Kenya, and Russia. He exemplifies our festival theme, walking through open doors for the gospel in educational settings around the world. Dr. Block? It's a joy to greet you all in the name of the Lord and to share with you the word this morning. Our theme verse is from 1 Corinthians 16, verses Eight to nine first corinthians sixteen eight to nine it 's a great honor to speak to you on this mission sunday my uh, development of the theme of the morning. will build on what Dr. Ryken did in the fall missionary, uh, missions conference when he gave us an excellent exposition of this passage, and I can assume it's still ringing in your ears, and it liberates us to go a slightly different direction this morning. The verse is from 1 Corinthians sixteen, eight to 9 But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Let's pray. We pray, O Lord, that you would open up your word to us this morning. Speak to us, soften our hearts and our minds to receive your word. For the glory of Christ our Savior, we ask it. Amen. When Ellen and I graduated from Bethany Bible College in another millennium and began our life together, we thought the Lord was calling us into foreign missionary service. Both of us have uh, members of the family who have poured out their lives in missions, and we expected this would happen to us. In the summer of 1967, at the annual conference of the leaders and delegates of all the Mennonite Brethren churches in Canada that were gathered in Coaldale, Alberta, we met with the board and were introduced to this august gathering as pre-candidate candidates. We were young and only had Bible college education and were advised to get a little more training. So I... Went on to university, completed a bachelor of education degree, and after that we went to Erlangen in Germany for a year of studies. That was our first taste of overseas uh, living. I came back and taught junior high school for two years until the Lord delivered me. (laughs) I use Exodus language for that. And He called us to seminary to get on with the preparation for the calling. Now, there were times during my first decade of undergraduate teaching that I wondered what would happen to this early sense of God's call to foreign service. Uh, Is this what God had in mind in 1983 when we moved across the border to the warm winters of Minnesota? Now, Minnesota may have been foreign to us, but it was not really overseas. Oh, but Minnesota started opening the doors. In 1993, my wife and I went uh, to Russia for the first time for a two-month stint teaching at the Moscow Baptist Seminary. What an experience that was. But that was just the beginning. Since then, the Lord has called us to all kinds of exotic and exciting places. But we're not here to talk about ourselves. We're here to give praise to God for the amazing ways in which he gets his work done. I wasn't born into privilege like Paul, about whom we'll be speaking in a moment. He had citizenship status within the Roman Empire. But I suppose if God can take a farmer like Amos from Tocoa and a poor farm boy from northern Saskatchewan like me, I suppose he can take anybody. Sometimes when I have observed what the Lord has done in our lives, I feel like Paul. Wide doors for effective work have opened to us. How did this happen? How did this happen to Paul? Well, this morning we want to reflect on that question But, of course, I have to make one point clear. We're not talking about education as a solution to the world's problems. Any more than we would talk about economics or political reform. This is not the deep problem of the world. What they need is the gospel. We're talking about using our education to get the gospel out. That is the agenda. Well, I would like to reflect on Paul's approach to the matter by asking three questions this morning. How did God prepare Paul for kingdom work in his education? How did God use Paul's education in kingdom work? And what was Paul's edu- attitude toward the education in and its relationship to kingdom work? Three questions for the morning. How did God prepare Paul for kingdom work? Well, to answer this question, we might begin with Acts 22 3, where in an autobiographical summary of his earlier life, Paul says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city and educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Well, here's his three point outline for his education. First, Paul was a native of Tarsus in Cilicia. Tarsus was the most important city in the Roman province of Cilicia, uh, up there in modern-day Turkey, about 14 miles inland from the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. The history of this town goes back to the second millennium B.C. It's an ancient town. It was even then already, but it had come under the successive dominations of Hittite, Assyrian, Persian, Greek, and Roman empires. And it was at the crossroads of traffic, commerce, and so its culture was very, very mixed. In Paul's day, Tarsus enjoyed the status of a free city within the Roman Empire. Uh, that this uh, status had been granted by Antony. Under Caesar Augustus, Tarsus was exempt from taxation and became famous for its Ivy League educational institutions. According to Strabo, the geographer, in the century of Jesus and Paul, citizens of Tarsus were keen students of philosophy and the liberal arts. So much so that Tarsus superseded Alexandria and Athens as a center of learning. And native Tarsians, not Martians, but Tarsians, were to be found in leading civic and educational posts all over the Roman Empire. This was the world into which Paul was born. Indeed, in Acts 21-39, Paul introduced himself as from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I can't introduce myself like that. I am from Borden, Saskatchewan. You've never heard of it. But Paul's citizenship status suggests that he came from an upper-class family of a very significant town. Second, Paul was a Jew. He mentions this both before the Roman official who mistook him for an Egyptian assassin, Acts 21-38. I always wonder how that happens. And before his Jewish interrogators in Jerusalem, 22-3. He could play the Tarsus card when he needed to, but Tarsus didn't define Paul. He was born a Jew which explains why at an early age his wealthy parents sent him to Jerusalem for a proper education. Now, if he ever studied Greek philosophy or rhetoric or literature, it was probably under the tutorship of critical Jewish teachers. Having grown up in Jerusalem, though Paul's early formal education was entirely Jewish. Third. Paul was a student of the renowned Rabbi Gamaliel. In Acts five thirty four, Luke introduces Gamaliel as a Pharisee, a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, a teacher of the law, one highly respected by all the peoples. This was the guy you want to study with. In this context, he was in in the context of Acts five. He was involved in a dispute with the apostles. Indeed, Luke gives us a transcript of a speech that he gave to the council advising caution in how they treat these guys. Don't put them to death. And he ends the speech this way. My advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they are planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God... You will, uh, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may find yourselves fighting against God. Now, although Gamaliel appears in this speech to be a reasonable man, it's undoubtedly from him that Paul learned his zeal for the Pharisaic brand of Judaism. A zeal he speaks of in Galatians 1, 13 to 14. You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion? How violently I persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the tradition of my ancestors. Education is not only taught, it's caught. And I think he caught this from Gamaliel. This is the zeal that young Saul displayed in Acts seven fifty four 54-60, when he kept the garments of the raving mob stoning Stephan. In fact, Luke notes that Saul was more than a passive witness to the stoning. He agreed completely with the execution and with a fierce persecution that scattered believers throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Luke reports that, quote, Saul went everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. He even arranged for the high priest in Jerusalem to write letters to the leaders of the synagogue far away in Damascus, authorizing him to capture those belonging to the way. (laughs) The pejorative expression for Christians to bring them bound to Jerusalem. This was Paul, the educated Pharisee. Which leads to the second question. How did God use Paul's education in kingdom work? Well, apparently, Paul's education didn't end with earning the doctoral degree under the tutorship of Gamaliel in Jerusalem. After he met Jesus... On the way to Damascus, what's the first thing the Lord did? He sent him on a crash course to Arabia. Oh, some scholars think that he went there as his first missionary. This was his first missionary assignment. He was witnessing to Nabataean Arabs. But given what Paul says in Galatians 1, to 17, it seems more likely that this was a special retreat for the purpose of re-education, weaning him of all that was wrong with his previous training and re-educating him that he might preach Christ with authority to the Gentiles. Not to mention to the Jews whom he would encounter in every town where he began his ministry. Much from Paul's previous education would prove valuable. His training in the Torah gave him total mastery of the Scriptures. And this is evident on every page of the epistles. But he also had to unlearn a great deal. Especially Judaism's concern for external shows of piety and for its loss of the spirit of Moses as reflected in the Torah and its twisting of the role of the law in, the relations, in one's relationship with God. From Moses, Paul should have learned that entrance into the kingdom of God is not Cain by keeping the law. It's a free gift of grace received by faith alone. From Moses, he should have learned that obedience to the will of God should be a grateful and joyful response to salvation already received. But Paul also had to unlearn what his education taught him about Jesus. You see, it was his teachers, the Jewish leaders, who led the way in crucifying Jesus for claiming to be the Messiah. Oh, well, you don't actually crucify people for claiming to be the Messiah. There were lots of messiahs in that day, and they didn't get crucified. The problem with Jesus was he claimed to be God. And that's the ultimate blasphemy, and for that you crucify him. That's For Paul, this dogma had to be unlearned. So when Paul reasoned with the Jews, he could appeal to the Torah and to the prophets with the best of the Pharisees. But it's not only in his reasoning with the Jews that he showed his education. He also showed his education in his literary style. His writings, his compositions are beautiful literature. I mean, what can match the hymn to Christ in Philippians 2, 5 to 13? Fabulous Jewish poetry written in Greek. Or Colossians 1, 15 to 20. In his missionary travels, whenever Paul came to a new town, his policy was to go to the synagogue and introduce Jesus to the Jews. And undoubtedly, in this, he utilized the best of his Jewish education. But Paul was also the apostle to the Gentiles. And when you work with the Gentiles, you have to speak in terms that Gentiles appreciate He seems to have been familiar with Greek forms of rhetoric, which he may well have used in his debates with the professors and students at the University of Tyrannus in Ephesus, where he lectured for two years after he was kicked out of the synagogue. That's that's a a creative way of using your education. If one educational door closes, you find another one, and this is exactly what he did— But even so, while he probably used Greek forms of rhetoric and argumentation in some of this, Paul declares that he didn't preach the gospel with eloquent wisdom, that it's not his rhetoric that he wanted to impress people with. No, in fact, Greek arguments would mean emptying the cross of its power. Of course, this doesn't mean that he would be shabby in his argumentation. For the sake of the gospel, you need to learn the language of your audience. And so we can see evidences of these Greek uh, forms in his speech to Felix in Acts 24. Some even see it in the epistle to the Galatians. But in other encounters with non-Jews, it's not only the rhetoric, but it's the thinking and the culture of the uh, Greeks that he is sensitive to. His education didn't all happen in school. Now, um, when debating with the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers in his Mars Hill address to the Athenians in Acts 17, he quoted the Greek poet Eratus. For in him we live and move and have our being. And he also acknowledged that he was using the Greeks' own poets when he said, For we too are his offspring, Acts 17 to 28. We might think that Paul learned these Greek, uh, this Greek tradition in Tarsus the hub of Stoic thought and education, except that he left Tarsus. I don't think they would have taught him this kind of stuff in kindergarten. But soon after that, he was on his way to Jerusalem. I think Paul, the educated man, learned from life. He will have picked up this along the way. If his Jewish rabbis wouldn't have introduced Greek notions to him, he would have encountered Hellenists in the streets of Jerusalem, or Caesarea, or Antioch, or wherever he went. But in Athens, it was not only the philosophy of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. This was also the hub of Greek idolatry. And Paul knew a lot about that. Now, some of you have visited Athens. The dominating image, uh, the dominant image of Athens is the Parthenon and its temple to the gods up there. The city in Paul's day was full of idols and altars to a host of gods. Not only those known by name or in the myths, but also the unknown Paul mentions, I saw this altar yesterday, I walked by this altar, and there was the inscription, to an unknown god. Well, why would you build an altar to an unknown god? I think it's to cover all your bases. This is an ancient ploy. In Assyrian treaties with underlings, they always list all kinds of gods as witnesses and guarantors of covenant, and after listing 35 gods, then they will add, and all the gods of all the lands, in case you missed anybody. Oh, he sees all you do, he hears all you say. The gods are watching all the time. And this is what Paul noticed in Athens, Using this inscription as his jumping-off point, Paul launched into an eloquent address on the folly of idolatry, and he offered a true alternative, the worship of the one true God who is calling on people everywhere to repent because the day is coming when the man who had been authenticated as the divinely chosen judge of all through the resurrection he will hold courts. Now, this speech contains some phrases that might have been familiar, but its iconoclasm, its anti-idolatry stance, and its theology was unlike anything they had ever heard. Where did Paul learn this? He learned it in life. Paul's learning is also evident in his writings. Yes, he writes with a pen of an Old Testament prophet, I think that's what he means when he says, Paul, an apostle, or Paul, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's putting himself in the train of the apostles. But he also writes in ways that people of his day wrote. When you read his epistles... You'll find they're structured after regular uh, formal letters in that day. Paul knew that if you're writing an official document, you don't write it with the same tone as when you send your mother-in-law an email note. You write appropriate to the context, and so while his his pastoral sermons to be read in while these are pastoral sermons to be read in the churches, they exhibit a tight. A uh, rhetorical style. This is the, the work of a literary person. There's much more we could say about the evidence of, of Paul's learning in his writings. But let's get on to the third question. What's Paul's attitude toward his education and its relationship to the kingdom work? Now, Paul does not explicitly dwell on his education a great deal. He doesn't insist that if you're going to announce I'm coming, be sure you've got my full name and all the letters behind my name. This is what credentials us. Now, he is qualified. It's not difficult to see in his actions and his speeches, though, a fundamental humility towards external credentials. He can play the Pharisee card when he needs to, and he'll even claim to be the embodiment of Pharisaical virtue, Philippians 3 6. With respect to zeal, I was persecutor of the church. With respect to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. It's a good Pharisee. However, he quickly discounts his external qualifications and his passion. Here's what he says I once thought these credentials were important. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law, rather that I become righteous through faith in Christ." For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith, Philippians 3, 7 to 9. Now, as I've already noticed, once Paul met Christ, in a sense, he had to divest himself of all his pharisaical dispositions, both with respect to his education and with respect to his attitudes toward the Torah that he had rigorously studied. In fact, when I read Paul, I see a model of what Jeremiah talks about in 923 to 23 to24. Jeremiah, six centuries earlier, said, "Thus says the Lord: Those who are wise should not boast in their wisdom." Those who are powerful should not boast in their strength. Those who are rich should not boast in their riches. If any would boast, this is the only virtue worth boasting about, that they truly know me, that I am the Lord who demonstrates steadfast love, chesed, justice, and righteousness on the earth, and that this is indeed what I delight in, declares the Lord. This is Paul. As for Paul's disposition toward his literary and rhetorical skills, he spends much of his second epistle to the Corinthians talking about the place of credentials in his ministry. Yes, objectively, according to earthly values, I've got all the degrees, he says, according to the flesh. He does indeed have much to boast about, but mm, this this is not what qualifies him for ministry. This is not why he's doing what he's doing. This is not what drives him. He was not out to show how smart he was or how widely traveled. All that he was and all that he had, he owed to Christ. In his ministry, he never touted his education. Or his erudition. These were simply graces that God had granted him to be invested for the kingdom of God. It was the call of God that drove him to the far corners of the empire. Not because he thought, I am God's gift to humanity. I'm smart. I'm brilliant. Good looking. Besides... No, whatever Paul did, whether he ate or drank, preached or debated, encouraged or scolded, lectured or wrote, he did it all for the glory of God. In so many, in these and so many other ways, Paul reminds me of, some of you you knew I would get back to this, Moses. Moses may not have been born with a silver spoon in his mouth, like Paul. His parents were both Hebrew slaves in Egypt. But Moses grew up with all the privileges of Egypt at his disposal. He was the adoptive grandson of Pharaoh himself. He moved among the high and mighty. He had access to the best education in Egypt. Unlike Paul, when the Lord arrested him, Moses was not persecuting God's people. In fact, he was out in the backside of the desert because he had stood up for them. So there are some differences here. But in his attitude, have you ever noticed how the Lord calls Moses and Moses' protestations at this call? The Lord comes to Moses with, at the burning bush. You know the story. I am sending you to Pharaoh to get my people out of Egypt. What's Moses' first response? Who, me? I'm nobody. Notice the Lord's response. He does not say, oh, yes, you are somebody. Have you forgotten? You're a prince in Egypt. God doesn't do that. Instead, he says, hmm, that's beside the point. It's not who you are. It's who I am. First excuse. Second excuse. Moses says, I have no authority. The people will ask, who sent you? The Lord does not say, oh, yes, you have authority. You're a man of the court." No, God's response is, it's not your authority that's crucial, but mine. I am Yahweh, the God of the ancestors. I'm sending you. When Moses says, I have no credibility, they won't believe me. The Lord does not say, oh, yes, you do. You were educated in the finest schools of Egypt. God's response is not that. He says, what's that in your hand? Yeah, a staff. You can see. Well, throw it on the ground. What happens? It turns into a snake. And then he gave him two more additional credentialing signs. And when Moses says, I have no talent. I can't speak. The Lord does not say, oh, yes, you do. Remember? All the rhetoric classes you, that you practiced with the finest rhetoricians in Egypt. God doesn't say that. He says, no, that's not your problem, it's mine. And I'll solve it. I'm sending Aaron. He'll speak for you. Not a problem. And then finally Moses says, send anybody you want but me. I'm not going. <laughs> Interestingly, then God gets angry. You know, when we can put up all these excuses, God, God will answer them. And he talks to us and we talk to, as we talk to him. But it, what God objects to is the resistance and the stubbornness. And the next thing we know, Moses is headed for Egypt. Now, Moses proved to be an able leader, a bold man in the high courts, and an eloquent orator. But you must remember, these were not the credentials that qualified him for kingdom service. In fact, God doesn't call people based on their education or their talents, or their connections. No, he gives people what they need to fulfill the calling. He reverses it. This is true for Paul. This is true for us. Some of you are aware, and I've mentioned it before, when I was growing up, my dream was to be a long-distance truck driver. Wouldn't that be fabulous? I can What could be better than sitting in that rig all by yourself, driving from Vancouver all the way to Halifax, with nobody bothering you? Sweet. I'm not naturally here. Some of you can tell. No, God doesn't call us according to the gifts. He gives us the gifts according to the calling. The qualification comes only from the call of God. Well, by now some of you are wondering, what has this got to do with us? and our missions festival that's running this week, well, plenty. First, like Paul and Moses and countless others throughout history, it is God who calls people to service, often out of comfortable circumstances where we are living. And so now I'm asking, God is asking, is he calling you? The service of global missions demands people of every sort, the best and the brightest, the most gifted and educated, as well as those whose only apparent gifts are determination, hard work, and stick-to-itiveness. Those are special gifts, too. These are the kind of people God uses. Second, While our training does not credential us for kingdom work, only the call of God does, God desires to use whatever is in our repertoire of talents, in our educational toolbox, and our gifts for His glory. Perhaps this week the Lord will tap some of you on the shoulder and say, Look, you are really effective in what you're doing. Let's transport this somewhere else and involve that same service in kingdom work overseas. The number of peoples in this church who have answered that call, we saw representatives of these in front of us. How exciting this is. There are lots of opportunities for full-time service, for part-time, short-term service, and for a very short one, two, three weeks. Many doors open for you to use that which God has invested in your life for His glory and His kingdom. Just one small illustration for you college students. You know what? If I were in your shoes today, you know what I would do? The first semester of my third year, I would study abroad. Not only would it open your eyes to the world, but imagine studying in Scott Theological College in Machakos in Kenya where Jamie and Kim vians are or at the Greek Bible College. What better place to learn Greek? They'll take you for a semester. They'll be happy to have you. And there you'll run into somebody like Myrto, who was here for two or three years when she was a student here at the college, who is now on the faculty at the Greek Bible College. Not only is she lecturing in all kinds of circles where I would never have entry... But her weekend she spends downtown using her Cambridge Ph.D. degree to minister to prostitutes and to fight human trafficking. That's using your education. Wouldn't you like to spend a semester there? There are lots of opportunities, whether your specialty is science or English literature, business economics, biology, history, mathematics, basketball, tent making, music, hockey. Opportunities abound for you for short-term assignments. Why not think about this? And back to this studying abroad. Do you know what else? The advantage of going overseas for a semester? It's far cheaper. You have your money in your pocket. But that's a Canaanite value. <laughs> Let God call you. College Church is poised for great ministry around the world. And those of you who are with us here this morning the lord is opening all kinds of doors i can't believe where the lord has led you what he wants is people who will lay their lives on the altar as whole bodied sacrifice offer their talents and education to the lord the world is waiting for you paul says there may be many there are many adversaries out there but <laughs> I have a feeling sometimes the biggest adversary is within our own inertia and our own stubborn wills. The world is waiting. Will you heed the call? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy to us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for your mercy to us in bringing us together this morning and calling us to your kingdom, your church, your service. Thank you for the privilege. We pray that you would give us courage and boldness to heed your call, to bear your name to the ends of the earth, wherever the doors open. We ask through Christ our Lord. Amen.